Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Fall Year Different. And thank you so much for making us an award-winning, chart-topping podcast, or as some people call us, an oddcast. And uh, we're for people who value real, different conversations about business and about life. On this episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. New York Times and Wall Street Journal number one best-selling author Ryan Holiday is back, and he's got a massive new book out. Now, before I share with you a little bit about Ryan and our conversation, I also want you to know something about the authors that we have on. See, the only authors we ever have on are ones that we think have ideas, teachings, and stories that are worth digging into. We have them on because we think they're fascinating and important. And I want you to know that I personally read their books before they come on. If I don't read every word, I give them a good hard look over for sure. I also want you to know that we sometimes and increasingly take a pass on giant named authors. Recently, one of the biggest authors on the planet was pitched to us and we took a pass on them. Uh, And the reason for that is if I don't believe in the author or their ideas, I don't care how famous they are. And so I want you to know that the authors that you hear are ones that we think are really worth digging into, regardless of how famous they are or are not. Well, Ryan Holiday happens to be very famous. His new book is called Lives of the Stoics. And it is a New York Times bestseller, a USA Today bestseller, and a Wall Street Journal number one bestseller. And uh, Ryan has done it again. He's written a classic. And um, this book is a classic for all time, no question, because it it studies philosophical learnings and history that are going to matter for all time. And it's particularly powerful in this moment that we're all living in. We go deep into the teachings of some of the greatest thinkers in history. And Ryan helps us see the events of today through the lens of powerful philosophers and history, providing today in an incredible context. We deal with big topics like truth, character, pain and suffering, humor, and a lot more. My guess is you're going to listen to this episode more than once. Now, with all that said, hey-ho, let's go. All right, Ryan, well, it's great to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Are you kidding? You can come back every week if you like. All right. As long as I don't have to leave my house. Yeah, no, you don't have to leave your house. And, uh, you know, we can drink we can drink cocktails over the Internet together or whatever. I got to tell you, this book is audaciousness a word, Ryan. It is a word. Yes. This book is an act of audaciousness in 2020. That's what I think. Well, I appreciate that. So there's the stuff that you write about and share, which is endlessly fascinating. And then there's you, which is also pretty fascinating. And so maybe I can start with you for a second. I was actually talking to my wife about you this morning before, before we did this. And I said, you know, one of the things I said, this book is so audacious. It's how many pages is this, Ryan? I don't know. 327. So, you know, this is a real book. This is a real read. And you had the audacity in 2020 to write a book about ancient philosophers and philosophy. And then to make that book a number one bestseller in a world where, we're addicted to, you know, Kardashian ass selfies and tweets and, and the like. This is a very substantive piece of work that s- somehow is resonating. How did you do that? 
I don't know if it's audacity, maybe it's just stupidity, but, th- but there is a, there is a craziness these days to, to even doing a book. I mean, with social media is so much more addictive. It's so much more accessible. Sometimes I think like the act of asking people to pay upfront for something and then to spend a week of their life, you know, it, it, involved in something that has no screen, you know, no, no validation whatsoever is, is an inherently insane thing to do. At the same time, you know, there's a reason that for all the changes that society has gone through over the last 2000 years, books are still books and people still like the written word. I mean, I opened the book. There's a story about Zeno, who's the founder of Stoicism, and he gets this prophecy as a young man that the oracle tells him, you know, you will become wise when you begin to have conversations with the dead. And only, only, you know, years later at a chance encounter at a bookstore, does Zeno come to realize that this prophecy was about reading, that books are a way to speak to the dead. And so I think as crazy as it is to put out a book these days, you know, this book came out a, th- a few weeks before the election, as crazy as it is to ask people to read in, in 2020, it's also a very timeless and very unique thing because in books, we have access to the wisdom of the, the people who live before us. And I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to play with it with you anyway. Okay. You know, I'm a dyslexic person. And so reading for me is a big commitment. I love reading, but it's, it's probably harder for me than it is for you. And when I read legendary shit from people who are not here anymore, I have a sense of, I know this sounds corny, but a tremendous sense of gratitude, particularly now that I've written a couple books, I know what it takes to write a book on something you care about, that you pour yourself into. And when I read books that affect my life powerfully, that come from the past, you know, you think about huge ones like A Man's Search for Meaning I read when I was a teenager, and it, it blew open so many doors for me by way of example. And I just thought, you know, I'm so grateful to Viktor Frankl for writing that book. Do you have that experience as well when you read these, these amazing things that you read? I think it was Socrates. Socrates said something like, the reason you read is that you gain quite easily what others learned quite painfully. And, and so I think one of the things you get in a book is like, e- even my books, which, which are, you know, mostly about history. They're, they're less about me. They're more about sort of the wisdom of the past. But every one of these books, you know, th- th- this book took, you know, going on two years to do plus all the years of learning and practice and, you know, experience that went into writing it. But, you know, what takes someone a, a week or a day to read, you know, took years of production to do even your podcast, like an hour interview is not just an hour of you talking to a person, but it's an hour. It, it's a condensed hour because you've spent so many countless hours learning and talking and experience like the, the, the conversation you have with someone in an hour it might take me five hours to get that same amount of information out of them, right? So what reading really is, is condensed information and uh, it's, it's distilled down information. And so, you know, in, in reading one book, you could jump forward a year of your life or 10 years of your life. It can save you painful trial and error, I think. So there is something magical and special about books that I think even as an author, even as a person who spends all my time with books, 
you never quite get over just how magical these things are. Yes, yes. And and for me, particularly as a struggling young entrepreneur with no education, no money, no nothing, as I started to consume some of these business books that made a big difference for me, the other thing you begin to see is, of course, the possibility of yourself in the writer's words. Sure. Right. So, for example, one of the books that made a big difference for me was Ogilvy on advertising. And there's the content of the book, which is incredible, of course, but there's his swagger, his style. And I was like, sure. how does this guy, you know, quote unquote, get away with being that way? And once I realized, well, if he can be himself in that way, well, maybe maybe I don't have to play at being a business person. I can be myself and be a successful business person at the same time. And so there's an inspiring thing about the individual that also happens. I think it cuts both ways, though, right? So on the one hand, it's sort of the aspirational element. You're like, oh, this person did it. They're no smarter than me. I can do it. So you get that, and that's really helpful. But I think the other way that books are so edifying, and and I think there's a Baldwin quote about this. He was saying, you know, you think your pain is so special and unique in this world, and then you read. And and so I think one of the other things you get, whether you're reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or Man's Search for Meaning or whatever, you you realize, oh, everyone is going through something, and and that that you're not the only one who feels this way. And I think. One of the things that books really allow you to do is enter somebody else's world and, and as foreign and as special and, you know, fascinating as that world is, you also kind of realize that it's the same world as your world. And then, so I think books can be this escape, but they can also be this kind of reassurance. Yeah. I remember as a young man, uh, when I read Catcher in the Rye, I had that experience that, that, wow, I'm not the only one that feels like a crazy alien misfit. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, oh, people 50 years ago thought all the adults were phonies and was disillusioned and struggling. And and I think so it's not only you're like, oh, I'm like that person. But I think one of the things you also get like, you know, today where where everything seems so politically divided, everything seems so, you know, uh, dysfunctional and broken or, or or worse. Right. I was just reading a book called Parting the Waters, which is about the sort of the first 10 or so years of, of Martin Luther King's sort of uh, journey to, to becoming the, the great civil rights leader. So it's, it's like, I think, 53 to 63, something like that. And you, you go, oh, here I was sort of thinking I understood this period of the past and thinking that the present is, is you know, unprecedented in its awfulness. And then you go, oh, I had a totally rosy picture of the past. And, and it, it sort of gives you this sense of like, oh, people have always been struggling. It's always been a fight of good versus evil. There's always been, you know, uh, as much disappointment as there was, you know, uh, progress. And, and you sort of, I think one of the things you can do when you're disaffected with the present is go study the past. And then it becomes much harder to be cynical about what's happening right now because you realize uh, just, just how much progress we've made and that, that ordinary people were the ones who contributed to that progress. And it, I think it, it, I always like the more distance I put between right now, myself and right now, usually the better equipped I am to deal with what's happening right now. Hmm. That's an interesting statement. Could you just say that again? So it registers in my database, Ryan? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you another example. I was I was reading a biography of Churchill, uh, and and Churchill was a professional author. Uh, this Churchill, although he inherited sort of a, a title and a, an aristocratic name, his, his family was basically broke, and he had to work his whole life. But he made his living as a writer. He's one of the great writers of his time. And he was talking about as he's out of power, but watching the Second World War break out before he sort of called back in, he was writing a biography, I think, of the Duke of Marlborough or something like that. And he writes, you know, uh, or, or maybe it was a history of the world. I forget what it was. But he said something like, you know, he writes in this letter. He's like, you know, the world is falling to pieces. And, and he's like, and nothing felt better than putting a thousand years between me and the present moment. And, and so it's not escapism in the sense that he's pretending nothing's happening, but to wrap his mind around what's happening, he's studying a thousand years ago. And so I think when you have a sense of history and tradition and all the things that have happened and how they actually happen, it then allows you to, to wrap your head around it. So the other, like, if you're like, okay, what's going on in the United States and China? There's all these terrible things happening and, and, and maybe a war will break out. Maybe there's going to be conflict. You know, there's a rising power and a, and an already ascendant power. It's like you could study the breaking CNN articles about this, or you could read, you know, Thucydides history of the Peloponnesian War, which is about the jockeying between Athens and Sparta. And it, it's just, it's a lot less loaded and it's a lot less political. And it's much more about people and psychology and history. And so I find whenever I'm stressed about what's happening, I try to study the past. And this gives me a clearer view of what's happening right now. So why don't we jump right in there? This is actually something I was hoping we could get to, Ryan, because if I could call it this, you'll correct me if you think about it differently. But I look at you as somebody who has created an incredible lens that you can look through and experience life through which is the, these ancient teachings that, that you've sort of become steeped in and now teach us with history. You know, so you've made philosophy and history cool at a time where, you know, most people say, hey, we're going to go to philosophy and or history class. We go, fuck that. If you'd been my philosophy and or history teacher, I'm, I might never have left the classroom. And so you've made this stuff very cool and compelling, and you have this very particular lens as a result. So with all that said, sure. how does today in the United States of America look through uh, Ryan Holiday's eyes? Well, I think what's happening in the world right now resembles a Shakespeare play. I mean, you have you have a, a, a man in Donald Trump who, you know, we could put all his political views aside, is a sort of a larger-than-life figure with larger-than-life appetites, larger-than-life flaws, um, and we're watching these things play out in real time. And, and, and so on the one hand, I think a lot of people focus on, you know, what's Trump doing? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this a good policy? Is this a bad policy? What are the implications of this or that? What I, what I've come to think about lately, having read a, a, a lot, uh, and, and studied this stuff quite a bit is I think in some ways we kind of abdicate our own agency. It's almost as if we're watching the politics of the world happen as if it's this thing on television as that instead of like what's happening right now. And, and I think, I think what, what I find to be so interesting is how passive everyone has become, right? So as everyone's angry, everyone's talking about things on social media, but what steps are people actually taking? What, 
choices are they making? What, what role are they playing? And, and I think it's a, it's a strange, it's just, it's, it's like, when we look at history, we see it, we, we, we sort of see it as sort of nice and neat and clean when really it was individuals making lots of different decisions. And so I'm kind of amazed at the, the, the decisions that people are making now. Um, you know, how do you, how do you watch, you know, the, 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 one of the worst things to ever happen to America, which would be the, the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, how do you watch an impeachment? How do you watch, you know, uh, these things happen over and over again. And then 70 million Americans were like, let's do that again. You know what I mean? Like almost sort of powerless to say, you know, hey, I want to, sh- I want to, I want it to go in a different direction. So I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around it myself. Frankly, I don't have a great answer for you, but it's, it's this weird space where it's almost like we're on this train and we can see that it's crashing. And you could argue that this is what's happening, uh, with climate change, with a whole bunch of different issues. It's like we're on this train, we're watching the, the car go into the lake, and instead of grabbing the wheel and turning it in a different direction, we're just expecting somebody else to do it for us. It, it is fascinating. It, it, you, you fire so many things in my brain. One of them is, I, I don't know if you remember this quote from Reagan, and I'll get it a little off, but I'll be directionally right, where uh, apparently Reagan was pretty fascinated with aliens, and mm-hmm. and he said something to the effect of, if some aliens were attacking the planet, it would stop all this bullshit between countries and we'd unify to try to protect the planet. Sure. Well, we do have an alien attacking the planet. If you, if you'll allow that analogy Mm -hmm. and what we're doing is arguing about masks. Yes. It's a weird thing. I was, I was talking to a friend the other day and you know, this is like a, a very smart person. This is a person who's been very successful. Who's a good Christian, a nice, nice human being someone I go to it for advice about something. And I, I was asking him something, I forget what it was, but I was asking his advice. And, you know, I thought I'd get like some thoughtful explanation. And then he was like, basically, I got a bunch of sort of conspiratorial anti-mask nonsense back from this person in a very unexpected way. Um, not like QAnon level bad, but like ridiculous, right? And, and it struck me in that moment that this person had been infected, right? Like not infected in the same way that not not to the seriousness of the virus itself but it's it's almost as if they got infected by an ancillary virus right and and i kind of see that i see that in in like uh, i have a facebook group for daily stoic and sometimes i'll be talking to people in there and you'll be talking to an otherwise sane person and then you'll say something and then boom it'll it'll sort of reveal oh they hold a bunch of these crazy beliefs you know and, 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 and so it strikes me that we're kind of in this weird place where, where everyone's thinking about, Hey, how do I protect myself from getting coronavirus? But it are totally unprotected against these other viruses. There's, there's obviously the virus of conspiracy theories. I think there's the virus, virus of sort of selfishness and, and meanness and callousness. That's another one. But then I also see, you know, to, just to make the point that this is not partisan, the other virus I see is the kind of magical thinking virus, like the amount of people that I've heard that have said some some sort of uh, remark to the effect of, oh, I'm just so done with this, so I'm doing X, Y, or Z. You know, like, I'm just so done, so I'm, you know, I'm going to ride a crowded bus. Uh, you know, basically it's like, I'm done, 
so I'm going to stop trying. Or people sort of say things like, look, obviously, I know we shouldn't be meeting in large groups. Obviously, I know we should be wearing a mask. You know, obviously, I know I'm elderly and having a lung condition. But this is my sister's wedding. So, you know, I'm going to go maskless in an indoor room with, you know, 300 people. And you're just like, so let me get this straight. You 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 know all this, but then you think you're exempt because this event is personally important to you, right? So so that's another kind of infection where it's almost as if something has gotten inside this person's brain and told them, "Hey, the rules don't apply to you right here." And so it's it's uh, it's certainly revealing just how twisted and and crazy we are as human beings. <laughs> And you're helping me connect two dots. Uh, let me see if I'm doing this right or how you think about this. So in, in your new book, you talk a lot about sort of um, Stoics having to have a, and these are my words, but sort of a profound relationship with reality, with facts, yeah. even when uh, that reality completely invalidates an opinion or a belief that they have, that that's one of the key teachings. Am I am I mm-hmm. getting this right from, totally. from your book? And then when I listened to you recently with Robert Greene, I forget if you or he brought it up first, but you started to talk about how um, cults and and one of you said something to the effect of, and you might be in a cult now and not know it, or you might have been in a cult in the past and not known it. And so these two ideas are connecting in my head as you speak, which is on one hand, we want to have a profound relationship with reality. And on the other hand, we, we have to be aware of we might have been recruited into a cult. Well, I was thinking about this uh, th- this Nexium cult that they just sort of broke up, and the the um, the founder of the Nexium cult was just sentenced to like 130 years in in jail. And and when you look at some of the claims that his students believe, it was you know I mean this is basically like a pudgy you know unintelligent like loser guy who created a cult around self improvement, which basically bilked rich people out of millions of dollars and then, you know, created a basically a harem of women that he could abuse. But but one of one of the, I think the most surreal claims was that he claimed that he was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the highest IQ ever recorded. Which is just obviously preposterous. But in the universe of that that cult that was that was said so many times and repeated so forcefully that it just sort of became true. And actually, to tie this back to the Trump thing, uh, uh, James Comey was talking about, you know, the first time he gets called into Trump's office, it's right after uh, the inauguration. And, and Trump, you know, immediately goes into how big the crowds at his inauguration were, how they were the biggest on record, so on and so forth. And one of the things that, that Comey realizes is he goes like, look, I don't want to, I don't, I'm supposed to have a professional relationship with this person. I'm not going to, I don't want to start the relationship off by being, by, by causing a fight over a thing that I don't really care about. But he's like, the second you do that, you've now accepted a false reality that this person is the author of. And you can see how that would happen in a cult like Nexium. It's like the first day you're there and he goes, I have the highest IQ ever recorded. You're like, what are you talking about? That's absurd. But then the law, when you don't immediately turn around and leave because of that, you've now partially accept, you've tacitly accepted that and, and it works on you. And, 
And look, I don't have any experience being in a cult, but, but you and I have a mutual friend in, in Dove Charney or a mutual acquaintance, let's say. And Dove had a kind of force of personality that way. And, and, and it was interesting to watch and, and especially thinking about in retrospect. Look, I was 20 years old when I started working for Dove. Dove was, you know, 40 plus. He's a multimillionaire. He's famous. He's louder than everyone else. He, he created a universe in which he controlled some of the facts. And then the people around him by agreeing to those facts create a universe where it becomes harder to know what is real and what's not real. And so for the Stoics that not, not joining the mob, not being deceived by appearances was really, really important. But they also knew how profoundly difficult that was. Yes. Uh, so much in there. I, I can't leave without asking you this from right. a business perspective. I'm sure you remember uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great and Built to Last, mm -hmm. legendary books. And one of the things he talks about in, in his research and learning is that legendary companies that are built to last build cult-like cultures. Yes. And he mentions a whole bunch of them. And so, and I describe a legendary CEO today as being an evangelist. And so there is an element of creating this cult-like culture where we're what a lot of the VCs call a mission-driven company mm -hmm. that I think are very positive, but there is a downside. And so how do we walk a line if we're trying to create something powerful, like maybe a business and a cult-like shared ethos and mission matters a lot, and that can be very healthy and exciting and stimulating without turning it into a cult of personality that, you know, got a guy like Dove appears to have uh, gotten himself into a lot of trouble with by you know, creating an emperor's new clothes bullshit machine around him. Well, I think that's a, that's a great that's a great analogy. It's it's like Steve Jobs has the reality distortion field, and this is what allows them to get through and over obstacles that ordinarily would hold the company back. But there, that has to be complemented by a really almost aggressive kind of self criticism. You know, it's like. I get the sense that Steve Jobs would go on stage and be like, this is the greatest iPhone of all time. Everyone should buy it. Here's why it's amazing. You're, you're telling a compelling story and narrative. You're creating something that, that people want to do. But I also imagine the next day he's back at the headquarters being like, this is a piece of shit. We're going to fix this. You know, how, like uh, this, this letter is, you know, one pixel smaller than it should be. How dare you? You've screwed, you know, th there's, there's, there's this sort of uh, hyper attention to detail and focus and, and quality that has to be fused with it. And, and it's still even then a dangerous bargain, right? For every one of the Steve Jobs, you also have an Adam Newman at WeWork or you have a Dove Charney who, who they amass so much power and they've gotten so used to sort of dictating reality that when they try to drive the company off a cliff and everyone says, hey, that's a really bad idea, they're like, you doubted me last time. Like, I, I think and we may have talked about this before, but I think that was that was a weird thing with Dove. Dove says, hey, I'm going to create a made in USA apparel company. I, I, I'm going to pay my workers a fair wage. I'm going to manufacture here in the US. I'm going to own my own stores. I'm going to I'm going to use my own models. I'm going to take my own photos. You, you're like, well, that's obviously going to fail. That's a horrendously bad idea for all of these business logic reasons, <laughs> right? And then, so when he turns out to be right, when he pulls it off, you might think that that's a magical event, and it is. 
but it's also sowing the seeds for his own destruction, right? Because now he's conflated criticism and worry and warnings with haters. I think this is in a way what happened to Donald Trump in the election is that to see the media as inherently hostile to you and all news you don't like is fake news. How do you know whether you actually are up or down in the polls? How do you know what states to focus on? Right. And, and, and so strategically, it's like, if you believe all polls are fake, well, then how do you know that, hey, we're down two points in Arizona and we've got to go campaign there? Um, you, you, you can, you can end up buying your own bullshit and put yourself in a really dangerous position. Yeah. And, and you see it all over. I mean, you mentioned briefly QAnon. Here's my uh, belief about how QAnon got started. A bunch of younger people who are very social media savvy got a bucket of Jack Daniels and a gallon of weed. And they just kept consuming that. And they kept coming up with insane ideas that they thought would be fun to get the world to believe. And they wanted to come up with the most insane one. And when they got through all the whiskey in the pot, what they had was... We're going to convince everybody, blah, you know, and I don't have to tell you what it's about, but sure. and fucking a some meaningful percentage of Americans believe this stuff. Well, it's it's there's this thing called cognitive dissonance. And this is where cults are so dangerous. If you now if you let's say your uncle it becomes a QAnon follower and you go, OK, Steve, let me walk you through why it's preposterous to think, you know, like here's it. The Pizzagate conspiracy, right? That there's this pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., whose basement is being used to, you know, sort of hold children in a giant Hillary Clinton run pedophilia ring, right? So obviously that's all ridiculous, but here's the fact. And, and I was just talking to a filmmaker about this who, who'd done a documentary about it. There is no basement in that pizza restaurant. Like, so it's not just like, Hey, this is very unlikely you know, blah, 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 blah. It's just like, factually, what you're saying is impossible, right? But if you said, if, if your Uncle Steve was a believer in the Pizzagate theory and he said, Uncle Steve, there's no basement in, you know, the pizza restaurant, he'd be like, oh, they've got to you, right? Like, he, it, it, they boarded it up, place, right? 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 You get to a place where actually the things that contradict your beliefs drive you further down into the belief system because your alternative like when 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 you're saying steve there's no there's no uh basement to the pizza restaurant you think you're telling them a fact right but inherent in that fact is you're a fucking moron who believed a random preposterous claim about a pizza restaurant that you didn't even check to see you know if if was physically possible and so what happens is it becomes very difficult for us to change our mind. Like even in American Apparel, I ultimately I ended up sort of working with the board as they made the decision to, to fire Dove and there was a big falling out between us. It was a really difficult part of my life. But what was made difficult, even more difficult um, was the fact that I had to look in the mirror and go, I've worked for this person for the last five to seven years. And if I'm going to make this new decision, I'm essentially repudiating a past version of myself. Yes. And that's really painful. We don't like to admit that we were wrong. And we definitely like, don't like to admit that we may have done something wrong. 
Yes, it's such a powerful insight. I remember as a young man, I heard the expression, most people would rather be right than successful. Yes. To say to you, no, no, no. They, 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 they boarded up the pizza place, right? Because sure. they got, they're so invested in being right. Um, and it's hard to say I- I'm wrong. And, and one of the things I think we get in your new book is sort of this profound insight into um, committing oneself to the questioning of things in a powerful way from a place that, that we say, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong because frankly, when I'm wrong, I learned some things. Yeah, there's uh, one of the one of the Stoics, his name was Chrysippus, you know, someone was sort of trying to pressure him to do something that said, look, everyone agrees with this or something. And he said, you know, if I wanted to follow the mob, I wouldn't have studied philosophy. So it's this kind <laughs> of it's this kind of difficult tension, right? Because like, say with masks, right? Um, it's just I think a lot of people think they're almost making the courageous decision by bucket by by questioning it when in fact it's it's actually the stupid thing so it's like how do you know when you're doing it because everyone else is doing it and when you're doing it because it's right you know and so there is this kind of tension and i i feel like we're almost at a place where it's like everyone's compass is just all screwed up and we don't know whether up is down down is up and it's really hard for people to get their bearings and so a lot of people think they're doing the right thing it's like look like the decision not to vaccinate your kids, let's say, we could almost say there's a kind of courage in that, but it's an insane courage, right? Like you're betting with your kid's life, you're just wrong. You know what I mean? So so I feel like what, what a lot of the misinformation on the internet has done, what a lot of the collapse of our sort of trust in institutions has done, is it's really just made people's minds run haywire and they're, they're just struggling to get their bearings. And, and you're right, from if we're sort of, taking this out of the realm of social criticism and making it much closer to sort of what we're all trying to accomplish as human beings. It's very hard for people to admit they're wrong. It's very hard for people to change course. Um, and it's, it's very hard for people to understand something as Upton Sinclair says, when their self-interest depends on them not understanding it. So you, you see a lot of people in kind of trapped in these positions where like I was in the, I was in the process of, of, of opening a business, uh, a brick and mortar business right when the pandemic hit. And I, and so I'm fortunate I'm in a financial position where I could just say, okay, I'll just wait. I don't need to do this. Right. But I could see, I could see different people who at the beginning of the pandemic were very on board. They're very civically minded, very, you know, selfless. But as that went on and there became you know, thousands or millions of financial reasons for them to change their mind, all of a sudden their mind did change. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I, I have friends in the restaurant business in various elements of it, re- owning restaurants, distribution of shit, et cetera. Yeah. And it's exactly what happened for, for some of them. In the beginning, they were all on board. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to be able to, uh, as George Bush said, put food on my family very soon here. <laughs> And, and rather than adapt, and I don't mean that in a shitty way, way. It, yeah. it, it had to have been absolutely horrible. It's pure hand of God shit, right? Exactly. But they take this victim position and some of them didn't and, and have moved forward. And so when your self-interest is 
misaligned with the reality of the situation, we get ourselves fucked up. The flip side of that, you know, here in Santa Cruz, um, where I live, there's a wonderful small restaurant called Home. And it's in, an, it's in a home. And, you know, it's one of these classic, amazing California cuisine, homemade pasta, farm to table, fresh, all that, you name all that shit, they, they got it nailed. And every time you go, the menu's different and, and it's wonderful and on and on. So what did they do when this thing happened? Well, they immediately started taking their sauces and their pastas and even some of their cuts of meat and their, uh, their, their sausage and this and that and the other. And they immediately started to go to the farmer's markets. And they started to build relationships back with their customers. And we got to see them at the farmer's markets and we would buy those things from them. And then as the easing started to come, they were in a lucky situation because it was a home. There's a backyard. Sure. So they could set up tables in the backyard and they were able to tell us at the farmer's market that, hey, you know, because we kept asking them, how are you doing? We're yeah. glad to see you and this and that. And they and they were able to give us an update. Well, we think when when it reopens and this is what we've been planning and this and that and the other. And, and they're finding a way, right? Is it great? No, but their, their business is okay and they're going to survive. And so there is this thing when our definition of reality gets completely blown up in our face, we go to denial and, and sometimes we go, there's the biggest shit sandwich in history, but if I don't f- figure out how to deal with it, my life's going to be bad and we wake up to the reality. And so I'm curious with all your thinking and reading and what have you learned about how to be a person that, that swallows the horrible reality and gets on with it as opposed to, you know, kind of goes nuts and denies it and sort of goes down with the ship. Yeah. There's so Marcus Aurelius sort of defined his sort of definition of stoicism, I think is really great. He says, uh, this is what you need. He goes, objective judgment. Now at this very moment, unselfish action now at this very moment, and then he says, willing acceptance now at this very moment of all external events. And he says, that's all you need. Can we get those three again? Yeah. Objective judgment, unselfish action, and then willing acceptance. And you can see how those three things fit perfectly into something like a pandemic or a, a bankruptcy or, you know, a, a totally unfair, slanderous story that's spreading about you through the media. It's like, first, you have to see it for what it is. Not your view, not your judgment of it, like, hey, whose fault is this? Why did it happen? You know, could it have been avoided? Not your fantasy rendering of it either, like, hey, it's going to be fine. Who cares? You know, um, uh, it'll go away like a, you know, it'll be a miracle. You can't do that. You have to see it for what it is unflinchingly. Then you have to take action, but your action has to be, I, I think, ideally, the, the more civic or public minded your actions the better they are, right? You know, it's the person that says, hey, I've got to throw my gender reveal party. I don't care uh, what the law says. That's who ends up burning down all of California, right? Man, I would love two minutes with that guy. Oh my God. Uh, and and then finally, the willing acceptance that, hey, there are such things as shit sandwiches. There are acts of God. There are, you know, circumstances which happen to which our only response is to, to grit our teeth and endure them, right? You know, I think if you spent the last eight months whining and complaining, denying, living in a fantasy world, blaming, you know, going down rabbit holes of, of this and that, you know, what, not only have you likely been unsuccessful, but you've also wasted eight months. When I talk to 
you know, businesses that I've invested in, or when I talk to, you know, people whose businesses I admire, what I've actually heard from them over the last eight months is like, this accelerated our five-year plan. We'd always thought about doing delivery, uh, but this forced us to do it, you know, or this allowed us to close three locations that we probably should have closed five years ago, but were too emotionally attached to, or, Hey, like, like even for me, like, I made most of my income or a large amount of my income traveling around giving talks. But I, and I told myself, Hey, this isn't affecting my writing because I'm able to be productive on the road, right? Sure. Not as productive as I would be at home, but I'm, I'm pretty productive. Well, now I never in my life, not, not probably since I was 15 years old, have I spent eight consecutive months not going anywhere, right? And to see what that translated to in terms of pages written, it's like, I don't know if I'll ever get on a plane again, right? <laughs> like, you know, so on the one hand, there, there's all sorts of costs to what's happened, but the willing acceptance element is going, Hey, this is a forced experiment in a different way of living or being. And, uh, as a result, I may emerge from this better than if I'd never gone through it because I never would have been tested in this way. Yes. Never would have been able to experiment in this way. Yes. And and I think many of us can relate to that. There are things that we're doing in our lives today that wouldn't have occurred to us or we w- wouldn't maybe have adopted, you know, a simple example, of course, is telemedicine. Yes. Uh, you know, I did my first ever checkup on Zoom. Right. And who would have thought that? Now, of course, there's certain things you have to come in for, but this this idea that, hey, wait a minute, we can get like 50 to 70% of this shit done digitally. And then, yes, you got to come in and we got to whatever, and we got to take your this and whatever and whatever. But um, the the reality is uh, it's transformed our, our own personal experience of medicine. And, and of course, you know, the doctors, I, I've had the same doctor, Ryan, for the better part of 25 years. She's unbelievable. And she made this incredible uh, comment to me that is now obvious, but in the moment it, it stopped me. She said her most important medical tool is this. And then she showed me her iPhone. Sure. You know, so those things have been accelerated. I think we're all going to be healthier and better off um, as a result of it. Yeah. It's like, why would I ever go to a grocery store ever again? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't think that I will. It does, doesn't make sense to. And you you just realize like, okay, beforehand, you told yourself that this was the most efficient way to do something because you never would have actually experimented. You never would have said, hey, what does it look like if I have all my meals at home and I have all my food delivered for six months? What would that look like? No one would do that, right? It's like, it's like how there's certain, there's all sorts of experiments that doctors and scientists can't do because we ethically, you can't experiment on human beings, right? Like if I had said to my wife at the beginning of the year, Hey, honey, um, let's do an experiment where I turn down 70% of our, of this part of our income by turning down all speaking requests. And let's just see if that makes us happier. And, uh, if, you know, let's just, Let's, let's, what if I turn down all speaking income and all business uh, opportunities that require face to face interactions? Um, because I think that the kids might be slightly better behaved if we were to do this. She'd be like, the downside there is enormous and the upside is like this, you know, but it turns out 
that actually the upside was much greater than uh, we would have thought. And the downside was smaller than we thought. Um, and so, it, you know, it's really a forced lifestyle experiment that's opened up all sorts of things um, and, and also forced us, I think, to be creative in all sorts of ways. The people have had to, you know, so, so sure, income over here goes away. But as a creative, smart person, you're also saying, well, now what, what interesting things can I do to, to recreate that? And so, it, you know, it's not as static as just like this disappeared. Now you're going to starve to death. It's this thing disappeared, but also all the energy and resources that were tied up in it are now freed. And where are those going to go? Yes. Yes. I just had an experience uh, along these lines. My friends at Splunk, uh, you know, I've known Doug Merritt, the CEO for a long time, and we do some work together. And so they were getting ready earlier in the year for their annual customer user conference. And normally they'd have it in Vegas and they'd have, you know, thousands and thousands of people there. And it would be a big customer user conference that, you know, we're all familiar with. And th they have raving fan, you know, sure. technical guy. You know, it's just, it's a company that if you're in that field, you love them. Anyway, so of course, can't do it. And in the beginning, you can sort of sense some of the team having a, a bit of a woe is me mindset, right? And very early on, they sort of started to think, well, how do we turn this thing on its head? And how do we ask the question, or let's ask the question, how do we use the technology to create a completely new, different, and exciting experience that people are going to love? We're forced into it, but rather than looking at this as, a, as a, the downside of this, let's look at what it creatively makes possible. So what did they do? Well, they went out and they figured out all this cool shit and talked to a lot of smart people and this and that and the other. They hired the, they hired a creative team that used the same technology that was used in the Mandalorian to create these cool 3D sets for their keynotes. And they did all this fucking cool stuff. Well, guess what happens? I forget the exact numbers, Ryan, but they had four to five times more people participate and... Everybody was excited and it, they clearly broke new ground and they felt incredibly creative. And most importantly, you know, their customers and their partners said they had an incredible experience and, uh, and we're stoked to be part of it rather than taking that, what was me, look at what we can't do mindset. Yeah, I've, I've even found this with, so I'm doing lots of virtual talks now, which have been great and interesting, but it, it's it, the other way. I think what a stoic tries to do is like, what skill can I practice here? that under ordinary circumstances, I wouldn't be able to practice. So, you know, when you get up on stage, you have a projector behind you and you have a clicker and you're sort of up there in front of the audience and, and uh, you're performing. Well, I, as I started doing these virtual gigs, I realized like that's not only much more complicated when you're like staring at a computer and you're switching over. And, and I was like, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to give a talk that doesn't require any slides. I'm just going to straight to camera talk. So it doesn't feel like people are watching a, you know, a, a, a some sort of like uh, obligatory work thing. And so my talk is now it's it's a totally different talk, which turns out to be refreshing. It's it's delivered in a different way, um, and it's required me to build up a, a different set of muscles than I was ordinarily using. And I think this is a good metaphor for life. It's like you know, Marcus talks about this in meditations. He, he talks about holding. He's like. When you're riding a horse, you hold the reins in your non-dominant hand. But he says your non-dominant hand is able to, to do this well 
even though it can't do basically anything else well. And he says, why? It's because he says, because of practice. And I think, um, the more you can try to practice with your non-dominant hand to try to do things in a way different than you normally do, um, not only is that exciting and interesting, but it makes you stronger as a result. Yes. I, I'm just flipping through your book. One of the uh, uh, chapters I was most interested in is the one on Seneca, mm-hmm. you know, ha- having read pieces and so many great quotes over the years and having had a bit of a sense, but nowhere near the level of depth you go into. Anyway, as you were just talking, I flipped through, there's a part of that chapter where you say, talking about him, life takes our plans and dashes them to pieces. It's, uh, it's certainly true. And I mean, look, in Seneca's case, I mean, this is a guy who's, he's sort of a star uh, legal student. He graduates uh, begins to practice as a lawyer and then he gets tuberculosis and he has to spend like 10 years recovering from tuberculosis. Then he comes back and he becomes a, he runs for, he becomes a senator and then is banished by the emperor for some phony offense. Um, and then he has to spend eight years in exile. Then he comes back and he thinks he gets his dream job and it turns out his boss is Nero. And so it's, it's like every time he thinks like it's finally going to go my way. I've done all the work. Now it's just my turn to reap the rewards. You know, Murphy's law intervenes and the worst possible thing that could happen happens to him. And I think that's life. You know what I mean? We, we kind of have this sense of like, you know, Oh, it's, Oh, you're graduating from high school and a pandemic and, you know, it blew that apart. I feel so sorry for you. How can I recreate that for you? And it's like, is that really how we should be thinking about it? Or should we be thinking about it as like, you're living through one of the most interesting times in history. You'll always remember this. What can you do instead? You know, it's like, we're always trying to glue the pieces back together in the exact same way. We're trying to keep everything exactly the same when really we should be thinking about sort of rolling with the punches and, and adapting and, and, uh, and making the most out of wh- wherever we happen to find ourselves. Yeah. It, I'm reminded of something this is going a little back for me, but we've had Amy Moran on a couple times. And if I remember right, one of the things she talks about is this bullshit in life that we sort of get taught things like, well, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And, and you know, that if something bad happens to you, things will get better. And, you know, all of this sort of mumbo jumbo, when in reality, we don't know how it's going to play out. I mean, in my life in the last 12 months, you know, we had the, the, the home invasion murder of one of my best friends and then, uh, who lives a few blocks from me. And then this summer, not even a year after the fact, uh, one of my best friends, my brother-in-law died in a horrible, um, tragic, sudden accident. And you're like, and all this is going on while all the other shit's going on in the world. Right. And, and there is a moment in this where you just go like, how much can one fucking family take? Like, this is fucking insanity, right? There's so much pain, so much, so much grief, anger, like all of it. And you're like, I'm going to explode. And you're like, well, sometimes life just lines up that way, man. It just, it, it, it's just what fucking happened. And you got to deal with the reality. And, you know, I love this expression. If you can't go around it, you got to go through it. Yeah, there is no way out but through is what Robert Frost said. I think one of the things we do. So f- first off, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your year that that's, that's rough. Uh, 
it's 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 uh tra- tragic in in the in the sense of like not just oh that's sad but it's like truly like tragic or like it sounds like a, a play what we tend to do when things like that happen to us or other people or we read about them in books or the news or whatever it is is we 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 violate that precept from Marcus Aurelius that we we're talking about earlier. Where Marcus Aurelius talks about objective judgment. So what we say is we go, that's not fair, right? That's unlikely. How could that have happened? Why did it happen to me? So instead of just focusing on the fact that it happened, it's real. It sucks. It's real though. Um, it it doesn't. You know, it's like I, I, I've said this when I've given some talks to different financial companies. There is no such thing as a bull market or a bear market, right? There's just the market. Uh, and then we have created terms which we apply to what it does when it goes in different directions. But the market doesn't, doesn't know any of this and it doesn't care about this, right? The market simply is what it is. It's a reflection of, 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 of you know, what people think things are worth. So the hard part is we go through life projecting good or bad. Uh, fair or unfair, right or wrong, not so much in the moral sense, but just like that shouldn't have happened. Well, it didn't take that into account when it was happening. It just happened. Epictetus says, you know, um, it's not things that upset us. It's our judgment about things. And so it's when you say this pandemic ruined me, this pandemic destroyed me. That's not true. The pandemic may have put your business under. The pandemic may have torn your marriage apart. It may have done any number of those things. Those, those happened. But, uh, your opinion is that you were hurt by these things, that these things happened to you unfairly and so on and so forth. So I think if we can kind of strip some of our judgment out of it, we, we do soften the blow somewhat, not completely. I'm not saying you can take the worst thing that ever happened to you, put some rose colored glasses on and it's magically the, the tragedy of losing a friend suddenly becomes wonderful. That's absurd. But you can take the sting out of it a little bit. Yes. And, and the other thing I've discovered is you can decide what you're going to have it mean. Yes. So, so to your point, right, I think being able to separate the facts, reality, whatever you want to call it, right? They murdered my friend. That's what happened. And the minute that happens, there's an explosion of emotion that that will echo throughout my entire life right and you can get mad at the world you can get mad at the killers you can there's a lot of things that you can do right that would be destructive to yourself and and potentially to others or what i said in in this case my 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 brother tushar um was indian in his words a brown guy and i don't have to tell you um what's been going on with the discussion around sure. race inequality in our country and the police and all those things. And we can get into the specifics if you like, but I had this aha Ryan, as this was playing out as somebody whose brother was murdered, a Brown guy murdered by four white guys and a largely white police force solved the crime. Those fucking evil are in jail right now. And I sort of had this aha, which is, you know what? Tushar gave me a platform to stand on in this discussion that I would not have otherwise had. And you know what? If he gave it to me, I'm going to use it. 
And so I've gotten into the mix about the discussion of race and the discussion of police and, and so forth and so on. Because the reality is there are not very many human beings in our country anyway that ever will experience anything like this. And particularly with the racial overtones of what happened and what's going on in our country. So anyway, long story longer, Ryan, what I'm trying to say is even with the most horrible thing, and I am no way putting whipped cream on this dog shit, it hurts all day, every day. And when you talk to his family and his mother, and it's unbelievable. But that said, if this is the cross that we have to bear, we can make a choice about how we're going to use this. And one of his other best friends, a dear friend of mine, Ben, Shortly after this happened, he said, one of the positives that's going to come from this is our ability to help other people is going to be much different as a result of it. Sure. Look, the, the same series of events that you just talked about could also be, you know, flashing forward 10 years. This could, you could be going, and that's why my marriage fell apart. And that's why I don't see those people anymore. That's why I drink, right? That's why I quit you know, my job and I live alone in this cabin in the woods, right? There's a, a bunch of different paths you take from that event that lead to you being worse, right? Not just worse off sort of emotionally, but worse as a person, right? There's, there's an equal number of paths that come off those tragedies that make you more empathetic, that make you more generous, that make you more civically engaged, you know, that, that make you more compassionate, any number of those things. So, you talked about Viktor Frankl earlier, and he, you know, his core thing, his core belief coming out of the Holocaust was the ability to find meaning in our suffering. Suffering is inevitable, right? Because life is going to, we are at the whim of so many forces outside of our control. But what we always retain is the ability to decide what things mean. Provided that we remain alive, we always have the ability to decide what something means, what we're going to do about it. And I think in a way, that's a good summation of, of Stoicism. We don't control what happens or what has happened, but we do control how we respond. And it, I mean, look, uh, I think many people would have been broken by the by the events that you're just talking about. The fact that you're still standing, you know, is a positive outcome in and of itself. That you might also be able to render some good out of it. That 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 moves society or the world or your family forward is, you know. That it to me, that's what willpower is about. Willpower is not, oh, hey, I was able to run, you know, 26 miles. Isn't that impressive? To me, willpower is like life fucking punched me in the face repeatedly and I got up and I'm still smiling. I don't know how quite I want to say this, but okay. I don't know if it's the ultimate. Maybe it's one of the ultimates you'll tell me. Sort of design points of human beings, which is the agency to decide how we're going to respond. That if you look at other animals, many of them are in a, what you might call, you know, scientists call a stimulus response, right? Ring the bell and I'll salivate. We have a, we have a, a three month old kitten sitting in the studio. And um, if I call him and I, you know, he's going to do what he does. Right. Sure. And, and that's fun and cool and all that. But when I invite you to do something or, or you invite me to do something, we have agency, right? And there's that moment where the thing happens and there's a moment in between and then there's our reaction or action to the thing that happened. And it strikes me that that agency of that in-between moment 
is a big part of your work, but I, I'm, I'm curious as to your reaction about that, Ryan. No, that's right. I, I think that's, I think that's Victor Frankl again, you know, in between stimulus and response is our opportunity to choose, uh, our condition, choose or choose who we want to be. And I think what stoicism is, is a training to respond well. The Stoics believe, look, we're going to have all sorts of instinctual, immediate, physiological reactions to things, right? You get the news that someone you love has been murdered. Like, no amount of philosophy makes that not hurt, right? Um, if, if you get in a car accident, no amount of training makes you not shake or tremble from the adrenaline dump that you just got. Just like no amount of training is going to prepare you to you know, walk through a haunted house where people are jumping out and scaring you. Like, you're going to have that immediate reaction. But what you have the ability to control is what you do after your sanity comes back to you. You know, after you, your heart rate decreases a little bit, after the news sinks in, after the, the verdict has been rendered, so to speak, you have the ability to decide how you're going to integrate this into your life, what your response is going to be. Right. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think it takes a lifetime to get there. The events that you're talking about, if they'd happened to you when you were 22, you know, they might have taken you a very different direction. It's about the training and the practice and the, the experiences that are leading you up to where you are. And that's something I think about in my own life, but I also think is a good thing for people to think about. Even when you're going through shit uh, right now, whether it's the pandemic or you, know, you lost your job because of the pandemic or whatever it is, Try to think about it as training for future adversity that you can't even begin to comprehend. So in your case, the stuff that you went through when you were 20 and when you were 30, um, you, they might have been unpleasant. It might have been awful. It might have had you, you know, uh, locked in your bedroom for months at a time, whatever it was, but it was preparing you for what 2020 had in mind for you. And, and that what you went through, what you endured, um, it might not have felt valuable at the time, but there's no way you'd be here even having this conversation with me had that not occurred. Yes. And I know this sounds corny to some, and it even sounds a little corny to me, but it is the experience I'm having, which is you're exactly right, Ryan. And it's almost as though my entire life was to get to this point and be in a position to respond the way that I have. No, in, in meditations, which Marcus Aurelius writes during a pandemic, um, he, he has this kind of discussion with himself. He says, it's unfortunate that this happened. And, and not only during, does Marcus Aurelius live during a pandemic, but he loses five children. Five of his children die. Um, he goes, it's unfortunate that this happened. And he goes, no, it's fortunate that this happened to me and not somebody else because somebody else wouldn't have been able to handle it the way that I'm handling it. And so that's the other thing that we want to think about. Not only did our, did our personal experiences lead up to where we are and that there is kind of a destiny in each moment that we face, but that, that we are in a better position to deal with this adversity than the person who has not gone through the things that we've gone through and that you can feel a little bit of gratitude and pride in that. Um, because again, most people would have been broken by the circumstances. Most people would have been broken by 
10% of the circumstances that you described. Um, and uh, just like a lot of people are broken by the fact that, you know, the pandemic means that they can't, you know, play golf as much as they like to, you know, like uh, people are fragile. And so when we say, oh, woe is me, we should actually be thinking, isn't it better that it happened to me than to someone else? Because how would they be holding up under this? Yes. And you said pride. And if you give me a little latitude, one of the, the themes, of course, that comes up in your work and in your new book is happiness. And I think maybe, particularly in the Western world, we've got our head up our ass around what happiness means. I think generally we're told that happiness is about Mai Tais on the beach in Maui. And believe me, I like Mai Tais on the beach in Maui, and that does make me happy. But the reality is most of us are not going to sit there and do that for years on end because sooner or later it gets boring and it gets it's not what life is. So that's point A. Point B, I am incredibly proud, Ryan, of how our family and group of friends have come together to deal with these extraordinary tragedies inside the context of everything that's happened over the last year. Sure. I have a tremendous sense of pride about it i'm very fucking proud of us we're closer as a result we've done incredible things including starting a charity in tushar's name that is up and running um and and many other things horrible things we've had to deal with and we've come together closer as a family now i wouldn't say that that's happiness in any normal sense of the word But the pride I have, the admiration I have for how we as a collective have come together to deal with these realities is in a weird way a source of happiness because I'm thankful for and inspired by the people that we've had to be for each other to deal with these situations. No, I I think that's right. I think, you know, Aristotle's definition of happiness is sort of closer to human flourishing and human flourishing doesn't just mean having fun and everything being easy it means becoming the best that you're capable of being and that i think that includes rising through surviving and triumphing over adversity and tragedy and loss and difficulty and so you know the story of sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill inevitably rolls back down for all of eternity Camus says, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. And I think the idea of like, look, we're all tiny ants doing the best that we can, but our happy, and our happiness is not in how easy things are. Our happiness is in, you know, waking up each day and doing what we have to do. Yes. And at the very beginning of your book, the very first sentence in the introduction says, the only reason to study philosophy is to become a better person. I mean, I can't think of any other reason worth doing, right? It's what, to impress people, to, to be able to make clever arguments, you know, to, to be able to get a good job teaching at Brown University or something. You know, th- this is not why we study philosophy. We study philosophy because we're trying to get through life and life is fucking hard. Yes. And the other thing that I think is germane, as I was talking with friends and family about your new book and, and our time together today in advance of today, you know, I, of course, use the word philosophy. And so, several times I heard, oh, fuck, I, I hate philosophy. I, philosophy was the class I hated most. 
why are you talking about philosophy? And I was like, well, forget that it's called philosophy for a second. These seminal ideas about the human condition, about society and so forth, are the foundations of the beliefs that create nations, that create societies, that 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 govern the way we behave with each other or what we you know misbehave with each other and so forth. And so do you think I'm right about that? That philosophy isn't that shitty class you took. Philosophy is the beginning of the framing of how we think and therefore how we behave. That's uh, completely right. Seneca says, what does philosophy offer? He says, you want to know? Philosophy offers counsel. Philosophy gives us advice. It's a shoulder to lean on. It's a compass. It's clarity. So philosophy gives us not just, you know, sort of what we're aspiring to and how, you know, what our ideals are, what is virtue, but philosophy also, you know, helps us, you know, pick up the pieces of our shattered lives and helps us endure the unthinkable. And that's what it was for thousands of years. It's only recently that it's become, you know, these arcane abstract questions. Like, how do you know you're not living in a computer simulation or what, you know? No, philosophy says, should, you know, my friend was murdered. Why should I continue to believe that people are good, right? Why should I keep trying? Why should I keep going? When we ask philosophy, why shouldn't I give in to resentment or bitterness or pain or fear? Um, and philosophy guides us through things like that, not how do I know if I have free will or not? You know, if philosophy says, here's how to live, here's how to get through suffering, Here's how to be the best version of yourself. And, and when I was writing Lives of the Stokes, I wanted to look at what are the actual lives of people who have done that look like? And that that's really what the book's about. Yeah, masterfully done. Uh, I also, if we could just touch maybe on humor. Sure. Um, yeah, the Stokes are also hilarious. Like I mentioned, Chrysippus. I think, is it Chrysippus? It's Chrysippus or Cleanthes. I think it's Cleanthes. Cleanthes died laughing to death. You know? Uh, and how wonderful is that? You know, we think that the, we think that the, uh, the Stokes, the, the, the philosophers had no humor. Um, Nassim Taleb, who's a great writer, he says, a Stoic is somebody who says, fuck you to fate. Um, which itself is funny, you know? And I, I think, you know, there's a reason the Stoics have so many badass one-liners is that, you know, there's an element of defiance in there. Uh, there's an element of, uh, gallows humor in there. And I, that's one of my favorite parts of it. There's, I'm sorry for forgetting which one it was, yeah. but you tell the story of one of the Stoics who I believe is being taken off to the gallows and is playing a game of chess. Yes. Could you recount that story for me? He's playing a game of chess uh, in his prison cell as they cart him off and the game's not done. And he says, as the guards are dragging him off, he says, let the record state, I am ahead by one piece. And then they take him off and they kill him. That's just so badass. And I think we need a little bit more of that these days. <laughs> Amen. Ryan, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we uh, kick out? No, I appreciate uh, you having me on. I'm sorry to hear about what you went through, but uh, the fact that you're still standing means uh, it hasn't broken you. No, and it's not going to, and it's not going to break our family either. And I, I think that authors like yourself who are doing this kind of work make a giant difference in good times and in bad, but particularly in bad. And uh, I can't imagine that you knew when you started to work on this book what it would be coming out into, but I think you've given us 
uh, a massive amount of wisdom here in about 300 pages and synthesized a set of stories and thinking um, that uh, have really been helpful to me. Um, so I want to thank you for your time. As always, um, you're welcome back anytime, all, all the time. And this book is a wonderful book and it's made a difference at a tough time. So thank you for that. I'm honored to hear that. Thanks, man. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, brother. There he is, the legendary Ryan Holiday, uh, back again with his new book, Lives of the Stoics. And um, the biggest compliment you could ever give us is to share this podcast with somebody that you love and share it on social media. Thank you so much. Now, um, my first business was a great success until it failed sp- spectacularly. <laughs> And uh, one of the reasons it failed was that we did not have the financial visibility and control that we needed. And that's why I'm so proud that our friends at Oracle NetSuite uh, have been our founding sponsor. Because NetSuite is the number one business system in the cloud for companies that are uh, as small as a million bucks to a hundred million and beyond. And as a matter of fact, NetSuite is the cloud business system for over 19,000 companies from over 200 countries. Learn how to build a legendary foundation for your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And trust me, I know you want to know your business. netsuite.com slash different. Also, um, if you're not listening to Lockhead on Marketing, why not check it out? You made us the number one uh, marketing and business podcast on the charts about six or eight weeks after we launch. If you value counterintuitive marketing approaches coupled with category design and category creation strategies, check out Lockhead on marketing wherever you get legendary podcasts. And um, one of the other things that's interesting about 2020, this is the year that data became an essential service. This is the year that the cloud became an essential service. And it's also the year that IT professionals became essential workers. My friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. They help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And they, and frankly, me too, want to say a big thank you to all of the digital heroes who've helped to scale to meet the challenge of 2020. It is a miracle that the internet didn't blow up this year. It is a miracle that the cloud didn't blow up this year. And frankly, it's a miracle that there have not been catastrophic security breaches all day, every day. No other industry has ever been tasked with responding to a global crisis in quite the way the tech industry has in 2020. So thank you. Splunk wants to say we are truly inspired by our digital heroes. Learn how to turn data into doing at Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's Splunk dot com slash D to E. Also want to thank Ryan Holiday. Uh, His new book is out. It's a stunner. It's called Lives of the Stoics. Pick it up wherever you get legendary books. Want to thank Aileen Boyle and Adriana Hernandez for helping us to make this episode happen. My friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. If you want to help people who uh, are trying to grapple with the challenges of 2020 and beyond check out onelifefullylive.org also want to say thank you to squadcast.fm they are the podcast recording platform that we use here for our guest episodes if you want to do professional podcasts that sound legendary check out squadcast.fm 
Speaking of legendary, do your people in your company think that your company is awesome? Uh, why not check out Socrates.ai? Socrates allows you to text or talk any question inside your company, any HR question, and have it answered immediately. And that is employee awesome, and that's Socrates. Socrates.ai. And my friends at Bottleneck are here to help scale you. Check out Bottleneck.online today for the power of a distant assistant. That's Bottleneck.online. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. And I want to tell you a secret. They're about to launch a new podcast called Conquer Your Category. So pay attention. It's coming out soon from my friends at atre.net. All right. I need to remind you that today's podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts and libations. We are produced by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check his podcast out. It's called Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my favorites. That's how we met. And uh, I love everything Jason. Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness and uh, Lockhead.com executed by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. And I want to do some special shout outs today to my buddy Iron Mike Steed and everyone at Ironbound. Dominic Monkhouse, he just had me on his podcast. It's called The Melting Pot. Check it out. My good friend Greg Canty in beautiful Ireland was recently on his podcast called Win Happy. Check that out. Thank you, Andrew Smallwood, Jaron Robin, uh, Tiffany Emery. Also, Ollie Henderson, he's got a new podcast that I was stoked to guest on. It's called Take My Advice. Check that out. Ollie Henderson, thank you. And to everybody who's been kind to us, emailed us, tweeted us, sent us LinkedIn love notes, thank you so much. We deeply appreciate it, and we're doing our best to keep up. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Nick Denton, founder of Gawker. Sorry, Nick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay healthy, be legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.